This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 547 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Lisa Hule. Now, Lisa was a prosecutor for the Los Angeles District Attorney, but went to, as she refers to, the dark side and became a defender. What makes Lisa's work unique is she's found herself defending many first responders. And one of the underlying causes and therefore defenses in some of these cases is the mental health element, the PTSD element on their actions. So this is an incredible conversation. We discuss obviously all elements of law, the mental health impact on our legal professionals, sexting, and so much more. Now, before we get to this very powerful, important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating that you leave truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier and easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 547 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Lisa Hule. Enjoy.
Well, Lisa, I want to start by saying welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Aw, thank you, James. I'm so, so fortunate to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, well, it's interesting how there's several guests I've had on and we were supposed to do it, you know, a year, two years, whatever before and the universe finds a way of that actually happening when it's supposed to. And we were supposed to do this quite a while ago as well. But I think some of the things that you've been through, especially your experience with Save a Warrior, God obviously intended for us to have this conversation now. Yes, I agree. It works in mysterious ways, huh? Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So for people listening, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? So um, I'm at my home right now, but I live in the Los Angeles area. That's where my law practice is. That's where I was born and raised. I'm a Los Angeles native, and I've been here for 48 wonderful years. Beautiful. So where? tell me about your, your early life, because I'd love to start at the very beginning then. So where in LA were you born? And then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents sure. did and how many siblings. Sure. So I was born um, in Pasadena, which is a nice little town um, outside of Los Angeles. Um, I think most people, um, if they've seen the movie Father of the Bride, the house in that movie um, is right in Pasadena. So it's a beautiful old town, you know, beautiful homes, lovely people, good schools, all of that. Um, And I was uh, born um, to my mother, Jane, and my father, whose name is Jan, he's from Germany. Um, We lived uh, for a short time in a beautiful home um, in San Marino, which is just south of Pasadena. Um, And my father was, my parents were young when they had me, they were, you know, in their early 20s. And my father had come out here from Germany uh, to start a life out here. Uh, and he he is still alive, by the way. Both of my parents are still alive. But my father uh, wasn't quite ready for the responsibilities um, of, of being married and having a, a little baby. So when I was five weeks old, he left in the middle of the night and flew back to Germany where he stayed for uh, a few months, from what I understand from my mother, um, until he came back and they went through the process of getting divorced when I was a tiny, tiny baby. So that's the that's the very, very beginning of my life. Um, so my mother and I were single, as I like to say, for about the first eight years of my life. I think it was very hard on her. I don't think that I quite appreciated, you know, of course, as a child, how much that impacted her. Um, While she was working, I was raised uh, during the day uh, by my grandparents, who I was very, very close to. So my mother's parents and life as I knew it was really, really good. I was happy. I had two wonderful grandparents. Um, I had a beautiful, loving, kind mother. Um, and you know, when you're a child, things do seem good when, when things are good, you know, you're happy and, and you don't have any complaints and you don't have the responsibilities of being an adult. So all was well. Um, and then I remember my stepfather coming into my life. 
And my stepfather is one of these, you know, good looking men who literally people, you know, stop and look at as he's walking down the street. He's very distinguished. He's he's in shape. He always has like a nice California tan um, and he's a lawyer and he's a very, very good lawyer. He is the reason I became a lawyer. Um, he is has a, a personality that can, you know, fill an entire room. Um, he is very uh, well read. He's probably the smartest man I've ever, ever known. Um, and he fell in love with my mother um, quite quite instantly. They met um, out at a bar like in Beverly Hills or something one night. And um, they were engaged, I think, within about six to eight weeks. So around the age of, like I said, age eight, um, my stepfather came into my life. And uh, this is this is kind of hard to talk about. Um, and it's something that now as a 48 year old woman, I'm really starting to understand and understand both intellectually and more importantly, emotionally. Um, you know, he was raised by a, an alcoholic father and an alcoholic mother. And as I'm now learning, um, late in life, when we are raised by alcoholics, um, we really start to have problems in our lives. Um, and what that looks like is, you know, as a child, you, you don't want to be different, right. Than everybody else, because children want to belong and they want to feel like they have a safe place with their friends and that they are included and, and that they aren't ostracized and they're not on the outside. When you are a child growing up in, in an alcoholic family, something, you know, something's not right because you start to see things happening that don't feel right. And some of those things can, you know, make you very scared. They can make you very anxious. They can leave you very unsettled. And there are days where a child living in an in a alcoholic home literally doesn't know what they're going to walk into when they open the door and come in from school. So what I know uh, is that, you know, he was raised uh, with two alcoholic parents and the way that he coped with that, because as you know, we all create our own coping mechanisms, right? That's just what we do as self-protection. Um, he just excelled in anything and everything that he ever did, whether it was athletics or school or, or what have you, he was the best and he was going to be the best because, you know, the thing that he couldn't control, you know, the, the life at home with, with alcoholic parents leads him to then go to the opposite extreme of what can he control. So, you know, in, in his life as a child, that was, you know, making sure that he always did, did his best and was the best. So the end product, of course, on the outside is great. You know, he is, like I said, one of the best lawyers I've ever seen. He is um, uh, uh, brilliant. He stays in shape even till this very day, you know, in his early seventies, he, he looks good. He's, he's just, you know, an all around great guy, but on the inside, um, he was really suffering. 
And when we suffer like that, you know, through our life, um, and then create those coping mechanisms, it's really hard to kind of get off of that hamster wheel. And so the, the end product from, from, you know, my perspective is that, um, that translated into, you know, then my upbringing where, um, you know, some of those same, same learned behaviors that, that he, um, adopted in order to survive, he then sort of passed on to me. And so, you know, I too, uh, was like at the top of my class, I, you know, played all the sports, I had a job and I, I always, you know, had to be perfect because that was something that I could control. Um, so I say all of this primarily to illustrate that, you know, we are all human and we don't always talk about some of the struggles and experiences that we have in life. But I think it's incredibly important that we start doing that because when we don't talk about those things, we therefore don't, you know, process those difficulties and those struggles. And as many of the people, you know, that, that you and I both have come into contact in our lives um, know that that can then really um, turn into just the perfect storm for, you know, life to just become unraveled, um, which uh, to sort of, you know, finish my thought here is, is what I really, really care about now is helping people identify the struggles and the things that they haven't dealt with and haven't processed. Now, when did you... No, no, that that, quite, that no, was the long answer. <laughs> no, and as, as the thing, as you as you probably know, like this, the opening questions used to be opening questions, and and I always credit Jake, Jake Clark, founder of Save a Warrior, which we'll talk about, to opening my eyes of the impact of childhood trauma on mental health in in adults. Um, and so now this, you know, I think as this goes on, as people feel more comfortable talking in general and certainly if they know the show realize that this is somewhere i hate using the word safe space but you know somewhere that that they can trust this is going to be you know to go wherever they want to go but i agree with you a hundred percent there's so much trauma out there because i think if you look at tribal humans it's very different to how we live our lives now you know those same kind of tribe dynamics existed in all these different continents so obviously that's a very human thing but you see that with suffering and with excellence i think is one you know that feeling of of validity that feeling of being told you're good enough when you've got two parents that maybe weren't telling you you're good enough and i think i see that in the the uh, body dysmorphia whether it's bodybuilding or anorexia you see that with the narcissism we see on social media now and some people say oh wow that's a good looking dude and i'm like that's a hurting hurting dude yeah. is right there so yeah i think these these conversations and they are becoming more frequent um are so so important like we'll talk about you know your achievements and accolades and things as we discuss you know cases and things but this kind of transparency i think is as if not more important than any of our you know achievements through life i agree i agree yeah Okay, so I'll let you ask the questions because I tend to talk a lot. <laughs> no, well, so just as a tangent, because that's what I was going to say with this. So at having this realization myself and seeing crime and death and destruction through 
my career um and then obviously you know seeing other things before that as well i've really started to reverse engineer through the incredible you know experience that i get to hear um reverse engineer homelessness prostitution addiction you know crime so before we kind of i'm pseudo jumping ahead but at what point in your legal career did you start to realize ah this isn't a criminal, a plaintiff, a defendant, but this is someone who, you know, what is the story? How did they actually get there? Did you have a kind of aha moment somewhere along that line? Um, I did. And I am horrified with my answer. And and I let me explain why. So I was a prosecutor in Los Angeles um, for the district attorney's office um, for 15 years. And I spent most of those 15 years prosecuting um, some of LA's most violent criminal defendants because I was handling, you know, the sex crimes and the domestic homicides and the child abuse, all of the most horrific, disturbing cases, you know, that we think about when we think about criminals. Um, so as a as a prosecutor, I liked to think that I was empathetic to the defendants that I was prosecuting, because I think to be a good prosecutor, you do have to have the ability to see both sides, right? Because otherwise, you're just going in blindly. And I don't think you're really doing your job well, if you go in, you know, just focusing on your side, I think you you need to be fair, you need to be judicious, you need to be um, like I said, some, somewhat empathetic to to what that person who you are prosecuting has gone through, what their life looked like, and all of those things. So I thought at the time that I was one of those good prosecutors who really understood the family, socioeconomic, educational, historical life of the defendants I was prosecuting, because I did think that that was part of my duty. I now will tell you, I absolutely did not. I had I now look on being on the outside and now representing people who are charged with crimes or under investigation. I, I can tell you that I really didn't truly grasp the true essence and life of the people that I prosecuted. Now, that doesn't mean that I didn't do my job well or didn't do my job fairly. And, you know, I certainly didn't prosecute the wrong people. I, I can go to sleep at night and tell you that without any, you know, doubt in my body. The people I prosecuted deserved to be held responsible for the crimes that they committed. And if I ever thought that there was somebody who either didn't do it or maybe we couldn't prove that the person did it or that there was something, you know, mitigating that we needed to consider. I was the first one to go running into the boss's office and say, time out. We have a problem and we need to talk about this. But doing this now as a defense attorney, um, it's just, you know, everything's different from the perspective that you look at it from. And I now am on the other side, right? I'm on the dark side. You know, that's what that's what my pro old prosecutor friends like to say. And, you know, all the police officers that I loved, you know, said when I was leaving the DA's office, oh, you're going to the dark side. And, if, you know, I laughed and I, you know, thought it was kind of funny and, you know, kind of irritating. And I, after, after about a year 
when people would say that, I would say, you know, it's not as dark as you think it is. It's really not because I'm helping people. So um, that really started to change that whole way of thinking um, when I handled my very first uh, first responder client who uh, who was a New York City uh, firefighter who had responded to 9-11. Um, it was his case that really, really did it for me in terms of understanding how important it is to really go far back into somebody's background to understand where where things went wrong and how they got to the point that they are at and and how all of that is incredibly important to understand why they are not now charged with a crime because you could have looked at that case that was like a DUI just a you know run of the mill DUI like who cares he, it, you know he was he was literally well, let me just tell you the story. So he's out. He was out at a bar or, or out at a restaurant, not even a bar. He was at a restaurant. Um, he had a his therapy dog with him because he's he struggles. He really, really struggles. He had a full um, um, PTSD and medical retirement because of his experience at, at 9-11. Um, he moved out here to live a more calm and peaceful life out at the beach and he was doing that, but he was still really struggling because of what he's been through. And so that night at dinner, after like maybe two glasses of wine, he realized, oh shit, I'm about to have a panic attack because he's very familiar with what this feels like because he has them frequently. And so he realized he was about to have a panic attack and he said to himself, I got to get out of this restaurant. I got to get home. So he got in his car and he was only like a mile from home. And when he got up closer to where his apartment was, there wasn't any parking available on his side of the street. So he had to make a U-turn to go to the other side of the street. And that was that ended up being the illegal U-turn, which then caused him to be pulled over. So um, when he came into my office, you know, of course, when he said, oh, you know, I said, are you from Los Angeles? He said, no, I'm from New York. And I said, oh, what did you do in New York? And he said, I was a firefighter. And I said, oh, well, okay, why, why did you stop working as a firefighter in New York? And he said, I was medically retired. And then that's when he said, I responded to 9-11. I was there for months, you know, searching for and recovering bodies. And I was like, oh my Lord. So in, in my experience representing him in that case, which you could have just looked at as just a simple DUI, I started to just uncover just all of the trauma. And he, you know, was telling me like all the all of the things that haunt him to this very day, that was the turning point. Cause that's when I realized you have to look at these people as human beings and you have to look at their whole life to understand how they got to the point where they're walking into a criminal defense attorney's office. Because if you can't do that, then you're not fully embracing, you know, the, the, the whole person and approaching it holistically, which I think is really what, I should do if I want to help them in the best way possible. So many of my clients will tell you, I don't just, you know, handle the case. I mean, I stay in contact with them and I check in on them and I say, you know, can we offer you some more support? If you need more support, you know, reach out to my assistant and we'll 
you know, we'll send you the list of books that we have found very helpful. We'll send you, you know, some podcasts to listen to, you know, we'll try to get you into this special program if you are really in a deep, dark place. So we really do, um, I do, and my assistant Heather does, we, we really go above and beyond to help the whole person, not just, you know, that moment at the the crime that they're charged with. Yeah. Well, I mean, that resonates very closely with me because my wife, you know, her, she's, she's told this on this podcast so I can repeat the story, but her boyfriend at the time shot himself while he was on the phone to her. <gasps> so oh she Lord. was grieving and she dove into alcohol as her, you know, poor coping mechanism, easiest thing to kind of get to. And ironically, that actually was the beginning of her healing because some of the counseling she had to have ended up indirectly being very good for her trauma. That's what I see with this Kyle, is it Rittenhouse thing, you know, reverse engineer that. None of those people should have been there in the first right. place. That that riot should never have happened. You reverse back and back and back, you've got a whole bunch of people dealing with trauma, you know. So, and then, you know, the other side, there's Aubrey, I forget the last name now, you know, you know, oh, I mean, yes. you know, reverse Gosh. engine, that was a horrific yeah. slaying. But why was, Ugh. you know, if he was stealing, why was he stealing? What was the history of those guys hunting him down? How had they been educated on, you know, what their perception of black people? You know what I mean? So when you reverse it back, you get to oh, yeah. trauma, you get to depression right. and anxiety and, and childhood trauma. And it doesn't excuse any crimes and any hurt that's happened to people. But if we don't, as you said, have these conversations, we're just going to keep locking up criminals rather than trying to solve the mental health crisis that we have in this country. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, since, since a good portion of my practice um, is representing first responders, you know, firefighters, police officers who see, you know, the most god-awful things that you would not wish for your worst enemy to see. Literally, you would not wish your worst enemy to see some of these crime scenes. You know, they, those clients, and I can think of probably three three horrific stories. Well, the, the 9-11 firefighter being one of them. Um, you know, they, what, what they internalize in order to do the job, um, it's, it's almost incomprehensible. Um, I'm sure you've heard this analogy, but but for the sake of the listeners, um, I, I will describe it. You know the best that I can. You know, it's like all those traumas. They keep putting them into the you know the the cup in, in their head, and it just keeps piling on and piling on and piling on. And one day that cup just overflows. You cannot keep putting all of those traumatic experiences into a, one vessel because the vessel at some point is going to become full and it will overflow. And then, you know, you're, you're le left with the perfect storm of now, now what do you do? Because your life is unraveling and you haven't dealt with any of these things. And some of that trauma at the bottom of the vessel could have been from, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, I had a, a lovely, lovely police officer who I, I had never I don't remember working with him. I had worked with this particular police department actually on a lot of very big cases when I was still a prosecutor. I don't remember meeting this, this fellow. He ended up being a client of mine about two years ago. Um, again, it was a DUI. I, yeah, it was a DUI. And, um, and by the way, I don't really like DUI cases. Like they just don't really interest me. But I'll tell you, if a cop gets arrested for a DUI, I'm all in. 
or a firefighter gets arrested for a DUI, I'm all in because I know that there's something so much deeper, right, going on that has led that the person to the point where they would like this fellow. So he was driving home after like a holiday party at his department. And he was um, about, oh, let's say three times over the legal limit, two in the morning on the freeway, wait for it, driving 140 miles an hour. So you say to yourself, first of all, oh my God, uh, what? <laughs> I mean, this is a police officer who clearly knows that this is not only illegal, but also um, a, a very dangerous situation to be putting himself in and not to mention all the other drivers on the road. Um, so when he came into my office, you know, I've become very, very good at asking the right questions. When he came into my office that day, um, I eventually said to him, what's going on? And he looked at me like, what do you mean? I said, what is going on in your life that we're here? Because you're a good guy. Like you're dressed perfectly. You're in a great unit. You're working undercover. You've gotten a whole bunch of, you know, accolades from the department, saved people's lives, everything. What is going on? And then I said, and more importantly, is there like something that you've been through that maybe, you know, like a critical incident that, that we need to talk about? Because you don't drive three times over the legal limit at 140 miles per hour at two in the morning on the freeway if there isn't something going on much deeper that's really upsetting you. And all of a sudden he just starts talking and he says, uh, yeah, when I was a much younger police officer, uh, we got a call to a um, traffic collision. And when we got there, we realized it was really bad. And he said, when I looked inside, I saw that it was one of our sergeants and he hadn't, he, he didn't make it. And I was just like, oh my God. And I said, did you ever talk to anybody? Like, did you and your partner and anybody else that responded to the scene, did you guys ever get any counseling, any grief counseling, any debrief counseling, anything? And he's like, well, yeah. I mean, they asked us, you know, in the room, you know, are you guys doing okay? Well, that doesn't do shit. I mean, <laughs> of course they're going to say, yeah, we're doing fine. Because what else are they supposed to say? No. We, we don't want to work anymore. We want to go home to our families and children because even though we know they're okay, we actually worry that maybe they're not because we just responded to this horrific scene. And now we think we could lose everybody in our life because that's the sort of hypervigilance that first responders start to you know, live with. They think like, oh my God, something's going to happen to my child you know, riding their bike to school. You know, Something's going to happen to my wife driving down the freeway because they see it all the time. So how could you not worry about those things? So then this is like even 10 times worse. Then he says, and there was this other call that they got where a woman called his station and said, oh my God, oh my God, my boyfriend's freaking out. He's totally freaking out. You guys need to get here. I'm really scared. And I think he's going to do something. So they get there and he and his partner park the car right in front. They get out of the car. They're walking up the front walkway just as the woman comes out the door and she starts walking towards them, you know, and they meet like halfway on the, on the house walkway. And she's like, he's inside, he's inside, he's freaking out. I'm really, really scared. And, and my client, the, the one that we're talking about looks up just as she says that and sees the front door close. 
And the front door also has one of those big, thick, like metal security screens, which the guy has also slammed shut. And they just looked at each other and they were like, oh, no. And she's like, my baby's inside. And they and they just they didn't. They, of course, knew what they had to do, but they were just like, oh, no. And so they walk to the front door, cannot get that metal security gate open because, you know, those things are almost impossible to get open. And so they walk around to the side window um, and they look inside and the guy is holding the baby and starts stabbing the baby. And they were just like, oh, shit. And so they run back around to the front. Another unit has now arrived. And by the grace of God, they're able to get that front security gate open, the metal security door. And so now they are inside. And the guy, when he was, you know, when he stopped stabbing the baby, he then starts stabbing himself. I mean, it was horrific, absolutely horrific. And the the guilt that my client has carried with him for all of these years thinking if i had just gotten that damn metal security door open you know we might have been able to do something and then the 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 horrific images that they saw when they looked in that window and then he never told anybody he never spoke to anybody i said to him uh, am i the first person that you've told this story to and he looked at me and said yes and i was like how does this happen? Because first of all, I am not a psychologist. And so I was thinking like, what do I even do? I don't even know what to say. And, and getting back to how does this happen that this man in this career, and it's no secret, these departments know that you're going to get called to a, a, a really bad scene in your career, maybe multiple. How are we not taking better care of these first responders? It's just, it's unbelievable. And it's more importantly, it's heartbreaking to think that he, you know, carried this around for so long and just had no, nothing, no place to put it, nowhere to process it, nowhere to unload it. And, and yeah, it just, it's heartbreaking. And it really, it makes me, it makes me sad. It makes me want to fight. It makes me, you know, fight for better resources for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's you know, that's one person. I mean, that's definitely. I think for most people listening, that is probably one of the worst things you could see. I mean, I've never seen that. But I've seen the result of abuse to a baby who I doubt made it, but to physically watch that, I mean, that's going to be seared in your head, you know. And that just, as you said, illustrates that's what we do in the job. And as you touched on earlier, something I talk about what yeah. was brought into the job. Now, five hundred and forty episodes later, I realize, my God, a lot with a lot of these people. So, you know, you, you talk about the basket, oh, the yeah. bucket, whatever it is. Yes, it's, you know, it's partly full. And when I, I wrote a book last year and I talk about the analogy of, of wanting the bucket full, full of healing liquid. And so each one of those traumas is actually punching a hole into the bucket. So then the body is like, I'm losing my fluid. I need to, to fill it with something. And that's where you see the alcohol, the addiction, the gambling, the drugs, you know, whatever it is to start fitting it in. Oh, now, yeah. those usually have a cost and now more holes start getting punched in. Fast forward a few years and you're driving 140 miles an hour on a freeway. Yep. Yeah. It's really, really sad. And I think what, what makes it so disturbing is just, just exactly that, you know, the suffering the human suffering that that 
a human being must be going through if they take it to such an extreme with, you know, blackout drinking or daily use of drugs or, you know, even like what what we were talking about at the beginning, like excessive exercise or bodybuilding or, you know, um, withholding food. You know, I went through that whole withholding food thing. I had every freaking eating disorder in the book because of all of the stuff that I didn't want to deal with. Because it's always that thing, you know, you do that other thing because of the thing you don't want to deal with, right? So you don't want to deal with like this poor man, you know, this this horrific scene that he went to. So then he wants to drink it away so that maybe, maybe just maybe I'll drink so much that I won't ever have to think about it again, you know? But that never happens. I mean, unless you drink yourself literally to death, you're going to wake up the next morning, you're going to go back to work and it's still going to haunt you. Um, but that thought of the suffering that somebody must be going through to where they end up with an addiction of any kind is it, it, it just, it breaks my heart. Cause I've been there, you know, I've been there and I did, you know, like, like I said, I, I did try and control it like with, with food and I, you know, got down very, 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 very thin. And then I, you know, did the whole like bulimia thing. And, you know, every way to Sunday, I was trying to control so just something that I could control, <laughs> you know? So, um, so I guess the good news, although I wouldn't wish that on anybody, the good news is it does give me the ability now to empathize with the people that I um, represent. And I think they really see that within five minutes of having a conversation. Yeah. Well, I think that's, me. I mean, even with the DUI, so I've talked about this before. I would say that probably I'm pulling a number out of the air now, but you know, 90% of people that drink, I'm not talking binge drink, I'm not talking you know, alcoholism, who just drink, who go out and have wine with their food or whatever it is, 90% of us, if we held our hands on our heart, would say there has been more more than one time where had I got pulled over, I would have blown and I would have had a DUI. You know, so we also have a very kind of like hypocritical element. And don't get me wrong, I'm not defending DUIs. There's a, there's a very valid reason that we see all the time in, in the fire service of why that is a law and it should be. But, you know, that underpinning is DUIs are just the people that got caught. That's the tip of the iceberg of how many people actually lean into alcohol for whatever thing. And, you know, I, I think that it can be used socially. I mean, a lot of things in moderation. However, it's the very first thing that we lean into more when we're trying to escape something. And so, you know, there's, there's a definitely an irony about the way that a DUI is looked at or a person with a DUI is looked at by a vast majority who know in their heart of hearts that that could have easily been them as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I totally agree. Yeah. And I, and that's why I say, you know, perspective is everything. And when you look at something like I have now from the, you know, other side of the table, from the proverbial dark side, you know, it, it really opens your eyes. And so then I say to myself, how do we make sure that everybody in the justice system is able to look at these cases a little bit more? Um, openly and not be so <laughs> judgmental for lack of a better word. Um, one of the things that comes to mind is, like I said, I represent a lot of police officers and firefighters and there are 
people that I can think of whose faces I can call to mind right now, prosecutors, who really just didn't want to hear any of it when I said, you know, I have some very compelling mitigating information about this police officer's life and life history and childhood, which might help explain how they got to this position. And they look at me like I am have like two heads. And I'm thinking to myself, why would you not want to consider this information, which again is mitigating and gives you a better perspective about what this client of mine has been through? And I just, you know, again, I, I think that as, as a prosecutor to do your job well, you need to be, you kind of need to be open-minded and really see see the defendant as a person and not just a name on the paper and not just a name, you know, that comes across your table in court. Um, and I'm hoping that things will start to, you know, come around more um, so that prosecutors will be more open-minded uh, about the human beneath, beneath the paper. Cause I think it's really important when you have the ability to take somebody's life away I think you owe them, you know, uh, at, at least, you know, a second glance uh, to see or learn a little bit more about them. Just just Absolutely. my humble opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree completely. Well, I would love to get your perspective kind of, your, as you said, your your first part of your legal career was the process, pr- prosecuting for the DA's office. Um, walk me, because th- I'm very, very naive when it comes to the legal system. So walk me through the kind of, the... The I want to say use the word vibe. It's such a terrible description, but the kind of um, ethos that was you know, the, the ideal prosecutor. Because what I've seen from just some of the conversations I've had, I've had, for example, Greg Kelly on, who was the uh, falsely accused outcry, um, you know, accused high school player who ended up. It was someone else in the same house that PD didn't even investigate, and Greg did. I think it was three years or two years in prison itself, and another two or three waiting to actually be cleared. And it was a you know um, sex crime on a minor, so it's not like the kind of charge where everyone was like buddy buddy with him in prison. So I can only imagine what that's like being falsely accused. Right. But then you also hear, and you know, obviously some of the good Netflix docu series as well, where. Um, yeah, there seems to be a push for a prosecution, so a push for a plea deal where it's seemingly people that maybe were actually innocent were so terrified of the alternative that they took a plea deal on something they didn't even do. So I would just love to, again, give you the mic and kind of walk me through, you know, what was expected of a the ideal prosecutor and then, you know, that element of the plea deal that I hear so much about as well. Right. So that's an excellent question. Um, and I, I can simplify it uh, by telling you the following. I used to evaluate cases for charging, like to decide if somebody was actually going to be charged with a crime because the unit that I was in, we vertically prosecuted our cases, meaning we were the, you had the same DA prosecuting the case from beginning to end. And not, not all crimes are handled that way, but these crimes, because they were vulnerable victims, or homicides, you know, you the same the same prosecutor stays on the case the entire time, assuming that that you know, man, you know, tra- transfers and employee issues, you know, all things remaining the same, we we would stay on the case from beginning to end. So I I would charge people and then I would stay on the case and then if we had to have a trial, I would try the case and then if we convicted them, I, I would do the sentencing and all that. When 
you are deciding whether to charge somebody with a crime at that moment that you are evaluating the case, whether you have to evaluate the case for you know 30 minutes or three days, because some cases are very complicated and it, it takes a while. I mean, sometimes you can be evaluating a case for a couple months. I mean, they aren't always simple and easy to get through. But whether it's a complicated case or a very simple case, you have to ask yourself, if I had to take this case to trial tomorrow, based on everything I know right now, can I prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt? Because that is the legal standard of proof in a criminal case in this country, beyond a reasonable doubt. Can I prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt and prove that this person who I'm maybe going to file charges on committed the crime and that this, this crime was in fact committed? If you can't answer yes to that, you should not be filing those charges. So if, if it's a close call at the time that you are reviewing a case, my position is you should not be filing that because if it can't be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, then your duty is to, to not file that and it should just be rejected for insufficient evidence. Um, once charges are filed, that duty, that ethical obligation as a prosecutor never goes away. If at any time while the case is pending, and it could be the day of trial, I actually had a case the day of trial that I went into my boss and I said, we got a big, big problem here. And by the way, that was on a really serious case, really serious, like stranger driving down the street, grabbing girls, serious. But one of those victims, and there were only two, one of those victims, um, the day of trial basically said, uh, I lied about a whole bunch of stuff. And I was like, I'm sorry, you did what? And she said, I, I lied about a whole bunch of stuff. And I, I just looked at her like, first of all, why are you telling me this the day of trial? We've only been working on this case for like two years. And then I had to ask myself, well, shit, how's, you know, <laughs> what do I do now? Because she was the current victim. And because of what had happened to the current victim, a prior victim ended up coming forward when she saw the news release, the press release about the arrest of the defendant. And we had literally no evidence for the first girl, except the mere fact that when she looked up on the news that night, like 10 years later, she said, oh, my God, it's the same guy. Well, oh, my God, it's the same guy isn't going to cut it. It's just not, especially in a sex crime. I mean, a defense attorney would be all over that if that's all you've got is her just looking up at the TV and saying, oh, my God, that's the guy. Well, maybe she's mistaken. I mean, you know, male black. How many of those do we have in this country? Oh, I don't know, like a couple million. So my point is, at that moment, I had to make a really difficult decision about what do we do? And that was when I went to my boss and I said, we have a huge problem. I don't think we can proceed with this case because our main victim, the one who we actually kind of had some proof on, has just told me that she is a big fat liar. How am I going to stand up there and argue that the jury should believe anything she says? Anything. And my boss looked at me like, what? And I said, what do you mean what? (laughs) She's, you know, I have an ethical issue here. So the long and the short of it is we didn't prosecute that guy. We just didn't. We just had to stop because I'm not going to go to trial on something that there are serious credibility issues. And getting back to your question, you know, this concept of, you know, squeezing the defendant for a plea deal. Well, I'm not going to go to trial on somebody that I that I have 
a doubt about whether or not we can actually convict. I'm just not going to do that. Um, and I do think that when when you know some of these guys, especially with sex crimes, you know those those maximum potential sentences on a on a sex case can very quickly get up into the you know double digits if not multiple life sentences just because of the way that sex crime charging occurs in especially in the state of California so you could easily get charged with a crime where you're looking right out the gate at like six life terms well back to your question about you know this plea you know if somebody in that position is offered a plea deal and they're thinking to themselves you know i didn't do this but my goodness the government sure seems to think i did and those police reports sure seem to indicate that i did and i'm looking at you know six six life sentences and they're offering me six years well maybe i should just take the six years D does that happen i'm sure it does happen i'm absolutely sure it happens so you know this the, you know the, the the criminal justice system it's it's a double edged sword i mean i think it does a lot of good um in terms of you know justice for for victims i honestly absolutely believe that because i did it for 15 years um but i also think that it has tremendous power and it can really be used and abused so i hope that answered your question did that yeah no it did and i okay. think like i said i'm totally totally coming from you know a layman's point of view but an interesting different perspective that you have something that this is james gearing's personal view like i feel as a firefighter paramedic as you know as someone who's pulled sheets over you know gang violence victims overdose victims um you know prostitutes and dumpsters that we found i mean just you name it this this ripple effect of what i see of the war on drugs the incredible failure of our drug prohibition that's driven our mentally ill into the shadows and empowered the predators of the world to to make money and power and prey on them um i went to my my family moved to Portugal. And very long story short, I've told this story so many times on this podcast, but I think it's important, you know, to to get as many perspectives so that we can build a case maybe for this. Um, I sat down with a guy who in Portugal decriminalized addiction, not smuggling, not selling, but addiction. And one of the benefits that they saw, apart from the human element and the absolute, you know, incredible reversal of the addiction rate that they had, was the manpower that was freed up in law enforcement and in the judicial system to then focus on the true crimes. We're stopping arresting addicts and or obviously the ripple effect of petty crimes from addiction. Um, what is your perspective of the impact of drug prohibition on what you've done your whole career? Oh, I, I think it takes up a huge percentage of the cases in the criminal justice system. Um, I don't necessarily think that we should um, decriminalize drugs as a blanket statement, but I do think that decriminalizing um, addiction, as you're saying, um, I could see how that could absolutely work because I, I do not think that putting an addict in jail does anything at all, nothing. There's no good reason to put an addict in jail. They aren't, the only thing that they're gonna be able to do in there maybe is detox. That's assuming that somebody's not you know, stiffing drugs to them on the side or, you know, whatever happens in jail. Um, but I think that as we were saying, you know, kind of touching on at the beginning of this conversation, an addict 
does not become an addict just because of the addiction. And, you know, my mother and I, my mother's very, very smart. She, she reads a lot. She's very educated. She's traveled the world. But my mother and I had a, a, a bit of a discourse on this. She said, well, don't alcoholics just drink just because of the addiction? And I looked at her like, mom, you're so smart. Why do you not understand this? I said, of course, they're not just drinking because of the addiction. They, you start drinking because of something you're trying to, to you know, push down and not deal with. That's how it starts. Now, maybe, you know, it, it certainly continues because then, you know, the addiction sets in. But an alcoholic is numbing out just like any other addiction because of what they don't want to process and mourn, you know, the grief that they have not processed and mourned as my, you know, dear friend, Jake Clark talks about and taught me and just taught this whole other group of men that I got to witness go through his, his organization. Um, it's the unmourned grief that we then create, you know, these, these um, addictions, you know, whether it be just the process addiction of, you know, you know, men in pornography, men having, you know, police officers going out and, and, you know, having a side girlfriend, you know, firefighters going out and, you know, hooking up with the nurses um, because they go to the hospital, you know, five times a night and they keep seeing the same cute nurse and they want to numb out because they don't want to deal with everything that's going on in their life. And, or maybe it's just the, you know, the alcoholic, you know, the, the police officer that gets off work and goes to the bar, you know, the neighborhood cop bar where the cops are welcome and, and loved and they get to go hang out there at the end of their shift. Um, those things are really, uh, it's, it's that the, the thing beneath the thing, you know, the thing that they're really trying to get away from and not deal with. And that can end up also creating, you know, the, a, a mental disorder. I mean, because think of that, that horrible life of, you know, you, you don't want to deal with the thing that you should deal with. And so then you start numbing out and then you feel really shitty because you know that you are drinking too much and then you're going to work the next day. And then right when you leave work, you go to the bar. And so now you just keep feeling worse and worse and worse and worse. And then you get depressed and then you get anxious because you're like, oh my God, when is somebody going to figure out that like, I'm not the guy that I profess I am. I'm actually a full-fledged alcoholic or I'm totally cheating on my wife or I'm, you know, hitting my kids because I can't deal with all the anxiety. And so then I start to take it out on them. I mean, this, this, this is happening. It's happening. This happens. And, you know, which is the whole point of having this conversation because we need to start opening our eyes and seeing what's going on around us. Um, you know, a, a police officer, at uh, Long Beach Police Department just committed suicide in the parking lot at his work. And this is about one of several that's happened like that recently. Yeah. That department alone has had like five deaths in four years. That is awful. Nobody should be able to sleep at night knowing that. It's that shouldn't be that way. So again, getting back to the suffering, it, it, it makes me so sad to think that that poor man who was married and had little kids was suffering so much that, that, that he thought that was his only option. He thought that that was the only way to find peace. And now look, 
His whole department is distraught. I can't even imagine what his wife and children feel like. I don't even know the guy. And I'm like horrified. I've already called the department to say, can we have a conversation, please? Because I have some resources that I want to just make sure that you guys know about. And by the way, I don't even work for the organizations that I'm going to tell you about. I just want to make sure that you know that there's resources out there so that another one of your officers doesn't do this. So it's it's heartbreaking. No, it is. And and something that I've talked about on here, obviously, we've got what we brought into the job. And that can be in, in a immense or a small part of. But then, as I point out, look at a drill ground of new recruits. I know you did some education in LAPD and uh-huh. some associated professions as well or departments. When I think of fire, you know, orientation, fire academy, I think of happy-go-lucky, mentally and physically resilient men and women. There's always, you know, a couple outliers out there, but overall they're, you know, the sheepdogs of the community, potential. And then you fast forward 10 or 15 years to most fire police departments and it's, a completely different story. As you mentioned now, behind the scenes, there's a lot of alcohol use, um, a lot of relationships that have failed, um, you know, the weight gain, I mean, all these things. And you look at the job and you look at the impact of sleep deprivation on the physical illnesses, the mental illnesses. You look at organizational stress, betrayal, and those kind of things. Some of these men and women that truly love their job, but they're swimming upstream the whole time, getting told to sit down and shut up. Um, you know, the impact, like I said, on the marriage. So now they go home. And as you said, there's, you know, stress and that. Um, and then what's terrifying to me is I see over and over again, I've had people that literally have pulled the trigger and survived on this show. I've got people that come, you know, so many people got really, really close. And the two common denominators, one is obviously they want to end the suffering and that's totally understandable. But the other one that you never really get, you know, heard discussed is, People say, oh, suicide is selfish. Just think of your kids. Think of your family. Well, what's so terrifying is these men and women's brain become so miswired by this point that they truly believe that they are burdens to their family, to their department. And so it's a selfless act. I'm going to take myself out of the equation because I'm causing you so much pain. The reality is completely opposite, but that's how miswired they are. And that's what breaks my heart is these suicides, if... If there was any way to get to these people and say, if you are thinking this, there's your fucking giant red flag, maybe we will be able to save them. But this, 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 uh, stigma and this facade where everyone else is doing okay and we're the weak one and we're the one struggling. And then the vicious circle of alcoholism, which then destroys your sleep even more. Right. You know, we're seeing it over and over again. And, and I don't know if it's something you're seeing on the legal side too, but to me, like, 10 plus years is where it really starts to, oh, to gain for momentum. sure for sure and you know what the, the the day i knew that that we really had a problem on our hands was when i was still in the prosecutor's office and it was starting to affect me and i'm not even a front i'm not a front line i'm not a, i'm not going out to the scenes <laughs> i'm just reading all of this on paper after the fact and then doing the trials and speaking to the victims and it was starting to affect me to the point where I vividly remember um, my my husband, I was married at the time. He said, you know, maybe you should take a break. And I looked at him like, how dare you say that? I'm tough. I can do this. Like, that's not very nice. What? You think I'm weak? And, you know, it just, you know, we got into an argument about it. But I think he really was saying it out of love and concern. Because if it's, you know, 
if it's getting to the point where I am, like you say, you know, you know not able to sleep. And I, I had, I actually had a nightmare about one of the defendants that I prosecuted. It was the most serious case I had ever handled. Um, but if it's starting to, you know, invade your subconscious when you're sleeping and you're having a nightmare, you're at that point where you, maybe you do need to take a step back. So um, I, yeah, I think, and I think what complicates the issue, and you started to touch on this, and I think this is something that needs to be outed right now, is that my my opinion is that people who are drawn to this profession have a lot of childhood trauma, um, which is usually unmourned and hasn't been processed. If it has, it hasn't been completely grieved and processed. And you know, because of the childhood trauma that they experienced or witnessed or were in the middle of, um, they, people like you and I, you know, we want to sort of right the wrong. We want to be the hero. We want to stand up for, you know, victims and all of that. And I, and I did the same thing and I wasn't beaten. I wasn't, you know, molested. I wasn't any of that, but I still, I still had some trauma in my childhood. Um, the, the issue that you and I now know is that when you have the childhood trauma and then you have, you know, the work trauma, which we refer to as the moral injury, you know, that's the perfect recipe then for complex PTSD. So this is like a lifelong thing that has to be understood and unraveled and processed and mourned and figured out in order to get to the good, healthy life that all of us want, because we do all want that. Of course we want that. We don't want to continue to suffer, but we don't know what to do when we're in these positions. Because like you said, you know, we, the stigma, we don't want to ask for help. We don't want to say there's something wrong with us. We don't want to say that we're not tough and can handle everything because then people are going to think we're weak. And if you're weak, you shouldn't be doing this job. And, you know, then we just create this whole thing in our head. Um, but I think the point is everybody is going through some of this. Everybody, literally everybody. I have yet to meet somebody who says to me, if they're being honest, my life is perfect. There isn't anything wrong. Everything's been great in my life. I've never had any trauma. Find me that person because I've not met that person. I don't think you have either. No, I have not. Far okay. from it. <laughs> okay. And so, you know, so that just goes to show we all should be able to relate to each other, but yet we don't because we don't talk about it or we don't care or we don't ask the right questions or we don't open up. You know, uh, there could be a million reasons, but we need to start fixing it. Absolutely. Well, you talked about, um, you know, the, the bringing the childhood trauma in, but then, you know, the work element. And one of the things I think a lot of us will agree with in the first responder professions is not so much the gore, the mm -hmm. dead body. It's seeing the pain on the families. Yep. So I can see in a courtroom, whether it's an ME's office, whether it's, you know, defendant prosecuting, whatever it is, with the scene photos, with the interviews, with the testimonies, how there would be a, a prolonged element of that. Was that something that you felt? Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, my gosh. All these people want is closure. They want this to be over. And that's because it, just what we're talking about, they don't want to have to deal with this any longer than they have to. And the toll that it takes on everybody involved um, is enormous. Um, 
I mean, I can even remember the jurors in my very last trial as a prosecutor, which was a gory, bloody, horrific double homicide. The jurors were like mad at me. They were they said, why didn't you warn us? Why didn't you tell us? We wish we had known this was going to be so awful. And I'm like, well, I can't tell you. I mean, I have to be, you know, but they were they were totally traumatized and they only were on the case for like two weeks. Imagine being involved in a case. You know, that case took like three years from beginning to end. It happened in 2012. I didn't prosecute and try and convict him until 2015. It was like um, it was um, about 40 months after the crime that we finally got the trial done. That's a long time. And um, and like I said, that was a horrific scene, a horrific murder. He was a horrible, hor- he's a psychopath, truly a psychopath. Um, and the, the department that was responsible for that case, the police department that, re- oh my God, they're, half the department responded to the scene, as I'm sure you can imagine, because when you have a critical incident like that, everybody goes. It was awful. I have a client right now, a current client who worked for that department, who now I represent. And guess what the issue is? PTSD. Guess what case he talks about? That case. Yeah, it's real. It's really real. And these people that think that they're that these guys use this as an excuse, think again. Think again. It is not an excuse. The guy literally can't sleep at night. I mean, it's bad. It's really bad. Yeah. Well, something I've discussed on here a lot is, you know, we get so myopic. We we, we get stuck in our, you know, echo chamber. And as I refer to, I'm so proud to have served here, to live here. I love it here. And I'm proud to be British as well. But this whole we are the best in the world mentality drives me up the fucking wall. Yeah. Because there are so many countries are doing parts of life so much better than we are and there's there's things that we're doing better than anyone else in the in in the world but one of the biggest questions that again that i just never hear like brought to the table even is why is it in norway and iceland and sweden and you know new zealand and a lot of these places maybe not new zealand because they have some you know worse areas but certainly you know so many countries around the planet portugal um that they're not slaying each other in the street. They're not having school shootings all the time. They're not having people drive through crowds where, you know, a, a beautiful group of older women are entertaining a bunch of <sighs> Christmas goers. Can you, like, ugh, that was awful. That was so awful. That was, I mean, and this is that time of year, right? My, um, my boyfriend who is a um, police officer um, we were just talking about that because it, it, that, that, that act, that kind of accident sort of kind of, um, just happened last night. There was a horrific collision last night near us where a car ran through a red light and hit another car. And now the driver of the car that re- ran the red light is dead. The mother and father in the other car are dead. Guess where they were coming from with their eight-year-old in the, in the car. They were coming from the airport. Because the mother had just come home from like a a mission in Africa where she was like, you know, doing um, philanthropic work. So they had just picked mom up from the airport. They're driving home. Both parents are now dead. And a little girl is parentless. And by the way, she's fighting for her life in the hospital. And this is that time of year right around Thanksgiving. We were talking about this literally today where all this stuff usually starts to happen, you know, because people are just sort of not, not right. They're not feeling right. They're 
feeling, you know, alone, helpless, afraid, you know, like they don't belong, depressed, you know, issues with family come up because everybody's like, oh God, I need to see my family. But then they're like, oh my God, but I hate my family because they fucked me up. <laughs> you know, I mean, whatever. It's just that time of year where things get weird, but it's because of the suffering. You know, it all, I hate to say it, I, I sound like a crazy person, but it all goes back to the suffering. Oh, I agree. You know, I agree. Like we, like I said, we do not, you know, we have such tooth and nail arguments that you see like, oh, take my guns. Don't take my guns. It's like, uh, you know, excuse me. Yeah. You in the back. Um, has anyone kind of maybe questioned why everyone's murdering each other? I know. Like why our police have to look like they're, you know, about to go into Baghdad every time they get out of their car. You know, I mean, it's just, it's insane that if you reverse engineer the, one of the most, I think we are actually technically the most affluent country on the planet, why there's so much misery and death and aggression and division. Well, maybe it's, there are countries, I'm maybe, sorry, go on. Maybe it's what you just said though, because we're the most affluent country, you know, in the world. Maybe that has something to do with it, you know, cause like money, yeah. can't, money can't buy happiness, right? Absolutely well, clearly not. <laughs> right. And so, you know, it, it clearly comes down to us as humans to make ourselves happy and material things aren't necessarily going to make us happy. You know, I mean, I just had to downsize, you know, from a house to a condo. In some ways, I'm like really freaking grateful I had to downsize from a house to a condo because you know what? My life is more simple and there isn't as much going on. And, you know, I'm comfortable and I have as much space as I need for, you know, me and my two boys and, you know, it's, it's okay, but people get all caught up at, you know, Oh, the image, the, this, you know, I have, I can't, I can't lose my house. Oh my God. You know? And it's sort of like, well, why it's just a house. Does that define you? Your house defines you. How sad is that? Shouldn't I you? Lost mine. Yeah. And, and, and you, and you were okay. Weren't you? Yeah, and that ended up being a blessing in disguise. Exactly. Really, that house was was built so poorly that when I finally <laughs> was able to clump, clamber more, my way back up to, you know, the financial and credit side, you know, I love where I live now. So yeah, absolutely. And when we were in the apartment that bridged the two, it, it redefined how little you actually need. So when we went exactly. to the next place, we were so grateful for you know what we got. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I know we've we've mentioned my friend Jake Clark a couple of times. So have you ever seen the video where he's talking? I don't even know who he's talking to. He talks to so many people, but he's doing he's giving a speech about how his ex-wife used to buy presents. And she would buy presents by saying something you want, something you need, something to wear and something to read. And I'm like, how lovely is that? Because what's the first thing we do in the holidays, like with our kids, we buy massive amounts of gifts. And usually those gifts end up in a closet. They don't use them after like the first week. And it's just excess, right? It's a whole bunch of excess. Well, what if we just limited the gift giving around the holidays to those four things? Something, you know, something our child wants, something the child needs, something that they're going to wear, and then something to read. I was like, that's beautiful like how cool and just keep it simple you know instead of excess yeah no so absolutely i feel like i feel like the affluence and the excess and the got to be bit, bigger better stronger smarter is why we're at this point in our country to answer your original question which i really didn't and i apologize i try to listen very carefully but sometimes i get off on a tangent that's my answer i think that's why we're in in this 
horrible situation that we're in as a country. Well, I mean, I, I had a unique perspective because when I moved to the U.S., um, I was here for, let me see, let me go to California. So I was here for about a couple of years and then went to, to Anaheim Fire for a few years. Loved that place. But when I got there was, I was there 05 to 08. So when I arrived was, everyone was riding the, the, the bubble, the housing bubble. And I was just like, holy shit. I mean, these firefighters had Winnebago's and fifth wheels and dirt bikes and jet skis. And I'm like, and my you know, genuine hand on my heart idea of the American dream was a home and a little bit of a yard so your kids could play and, you know, fence so the dog didn't, you know, get out and cause trouble. Right. And, that, and that was it, you know. And and I was just blown away by this American dream that had been sold to the American people as, no, you need a 4,000 square foot house and you need you know, everyone needs a Winnebago that they use 50, you know, one week out of uh, 52 and sits on the driveway for the rest of the time, depreciating, you know. And so, and sadly, this I'm not, you know, happy about this at all, but most of my friends lost all of that stuff. And they were hardworking firefighters that were working extra overtime and, uh, you know, these mortgages yeah. that suddenly shifted. Now they went from affordable to completely unaffordable. Right. And, yeah, and it was all right. because of chasing that facade of, you know, this is what you need. So I, I agree. When you look at the, the greatest generation, um, you know, I can't help but feel like they overcompensated with the boomers, as it were. Oh, yeah. And that gratitude was lost in trying to make their lives as nice as possible because of the suffering that they had seen. Right. Yep. Yep. But like we said, money can't buy happiness, right? It just can't. And and then here we are, all of us, you know, a lot of us just completely messed up. So I think there's something to be said to getting back to simplicity, getting back to meditating, Getting back to just, you know, being grateful and appreciating life and the people around you and making difficult decisions. If there's somebody in your life that's not good for you and is not a healthy person in your life, you know, maybe it's time to let that person go, you know, just simplifying things and getting down to the things that really um, um, add something, you know, as opposed to take things away. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you'd, you'd mentioned Jake's name a couple of times. So Jake Clark, founder of Save a Warrior. When we were going to do this was kind of at the beginning of a big shitstorm in your life, for lack yep. of a better word, yep. that you found yourself in Save a Warrior. Um, yep. So kind of walk me through the lows and then, and then you know, your healing journey from there. So I was I was and still am um, going through a divorce about eight months ago. So this past March of 2021, we were about six months into our separation and I was just really in a bad place. Um, I was feeling incredibly guilty for being the one to say that I don't want to be married anymore. And well, to my husband. It's not that I didn't want to be married. I do want to be married. I think being married is fun and great and wonderful. I just, um, it wasn't working for us as a couple. Um, so six months into that process, I was just really feeling awful, really awful. Like, uh, I don't want to feel this way anymore. Awful. And if there's a way to make this go away, awful. Not that I had a plan, not that I was ever going to do anything. And people, people need to understand that. 
you can have like suicidal ideation without having a plan or without really truly thinking you're ever going to do do it at all but that thought crosses your mind like this fucking sucks uh and if i could make it end if i could make the pain go away there isn't anything i wouldn't do and i was at that point and so i called or texted uh your friend and mine um maddie fiorenza and i said uh i need i need help like now and i please 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 if there's a way that we can get me to that program um because you know i had been a prosecutor and uh, i sent clients there all the time and he said stop i'll call you in the morning we i i got you we will we will we will make this happen and like the next day he said um can you go next week and i was like uh uh i yes yeah i just have to you know make sure that my kids are able to get to school and you know that that my ex can um you know take care of things while i'm gone and that was the best decision i ever made um literally the best decision i ever made it was absolutely life changing um jake is a brilliant man um he has really studied this issue of childhood trauma and addiction um and complex ptsd and um um authenticity and inauthenticity and denial and shame and all of that he has studied that like i i don't i can't think of somebody that understands that stuff better than he does and that allows him to really break down how someone like me gets to this point in their life where they are in this shit storm as you called it i laugh because i would say the same thing <laughs> <laughs> because i was i mean i kind of knew how i had gotten into that position but i didn't quite know because i'm thinking you're a smart girl you're a successful girl you've got a law practice you've you're 48 years old you live in a great place life is great how the hell did you get to this how why are you here well now i now i understand perfectly how i got there but it took somebody um you know one of one of jake's um um facilitators that that helps um lead these these groups his name is Brad Gallup he's an amazing amazing man i always joke with jake and i say brad will always be my first <laughs> cuz he was the one that you know took me on this journey and you so you basically go through um what they call a cohort which is the group of of in my case women cuz they separate the men from the women for obvious reasons cuz a lot of men's issues are with women and a lot of women's issues are with men so i had a group of i think was it 12 and we lost one along the way cuz she just couldn't couldn't do it she wasn't ready to heal so she was fighting it fighting it fighting it and getting progressively more and more and more belligerent and aggressive and angry and she finally just it just it just wasn't going to work but being with these women who who did stay and who went through the journey with me was just so um incredible because you really learn that you're not alone which i think is very important for people who are suffering to know that they're not alone i think that's a huge component to all this once you know you're not alone you take this sigh of relief and you're like oh my god you used to think the same things like i thought i was a horrible person for thinking those things and then they're like 
like half the room raised their hand. And I was like, what? Wow. Or, oh my God, you used to do that. I thought I was the only one that used to do that. And like, again, half the room raised their hand and said, yeah, we used to do. And I'm like, what? Oh my God, I'm not a horrible person. All these other women used to do the same thing. And so it starts to normalize what you think is this shameful, horrible thing, whatever, whatever the thing is that you do, you know, drink, whatever it is. Um, and then you, through this process, start to understand that like things only have meaning if you give them meaning, right? And so if you create this big, awful, dramatic story around the shitstorm that you're in, then you're going to live a big, awful, dramatic story of a shitstorm. On the other hand, if you just look at things for what they are and take that story off and not make it this like big, dramatic thing, it's a lot easier to get through, you know? So my big problem, you know, in the early part of this divorce was just like, I didn't want to hurt anybody. I didn't want to hurt my husband. I didn't want to hurt my kids. I didn't want to feel, I didn't want to be responsible for being the bad guy or the, you know, the bad mom, the bad, the bad wife. But it's like, okay, well, what's the alternative? Stay in a, in a relationship that is not setting a good example for my children to really learn what love is. Stay with a man who I'm not giving the love that he deserves to. Is that the best alternative? Of course, that's not a good alternative. So, you know, just, helping understand like how to sort of look at life differently has made such a huge, huge change in my life. Um, and meditation, well, my God, that'll change your life. Do you meditate, James? I do. Now I'm yeah, going to ask use, No, no, I use, I use Headspace. <laughs> yeah, I think Headspace is incredible. I had the founder, Andy Puddicom, on quite a while ago now, but that's for me yeah. with my monkey mind, just on my phone, I hit play and I sit yeah. there and it's incredible. I mean, it's life-changing, right? I mean, because for like 20 minutes, however often you do it, once a day or twice a day, you just get out of your head and you just like get your breathing going right. And you start to like let those thoughts that can just be like my good friend Lisa says, you know, like a swarm of bees in your head. I mean, just let those bees go. Just get them out and just be, just if a thought comes in, process the thought, let it go. If another one comes down, process it and let it go. That makes a huge amount of difference. And then I laugh when all these people say, oh my God, I don't have time to meditate 20 minutes a day or 20 minutes twice a day. And I giggle because I'm like, really? Because if you were doing that, you know how much more efficient you would be in your day? You would get so much done because you wouldn't be caught up with the swarm of bees when you're trying to write the book or, you know, read the case or whatever the hell you do for your job, you know, it just makes so much of a difference. So that has been incredible. And the days I don't do it, I notice it. And there are times where I can be sitting in a situation and I'm like, I really need to meditate right now because I would feel so much better. So it's really great. It's really, really great. I, I gave an analogy when we were talking, I think before we started recording, but I, I hit that low and the people that have maybe seen the video know what I'm talking about. But um, the way I found like at first, oh my God, it was like just like bits of glass in my face, just sitting there, you know, trying to be present and everything. And these thoughts were just banging around my brain. But it reminded me of the um, the machine that they have for the lottery. And they, they have the little ping pong balls bouncing around. Uh-huh. And my thing was like those, each ping pong ball is a worry, a legitimate worry in your life. Something you're going to have oh, yeah. to deal with. But what meditation does, it turns off the fan. 
So they're still right. in there, but they're just right. laying on the on the floor, right? Just just waiting patiently for you to address them in the priority that they need to be addressed, rather than all bouncing around your head and Absolutely. you have the same thought ten thousand times a day. Yeah, yeah, and it's life changing, right? I mean, it's like, oh my god, you can have peace now, and not not have the ping pong balls or the you know the swarm of bees in your head. Yeah, it's just it is absolutely life changing. So that that alone, I think, could change so many things. I I was thinking about this just the other day because my one of my big things right now is helping. You know, how can we help the younger generation? Because I'll tell you what, I went through Save a Warrior at age forty seven. I really wish I had gone through at age twenty one before I really did a lot of stupid shit. (laughs) So you know, um, so I would love to see a way that we can get this kind of a program um, to a much younger age. And then if we could get like meditation, I know they've started meditation in some schools, like a a small, small, small fraction of schools, but getting meditation into public schools across the country, my God, do you know? Of course, you know, how amazing would that be? Yeah. I think it was, was it the Dalai Lama? I think that said something and I'm totally paraphrasing, but if we put meditation in all schools that we would end all wars, and you're like, ha, guffaw, guffaw. But actually, you think about it. If all schools around the world were taught to, to just sit and be and have compassion and kindness and gratitude and humility, you literally would. Because if there were any kind of figures that popped up saying, hey, I want to kill all Jews, the rest of the kids would just, you know, throttle them and then get on with the meditation act <laughs> rather than be pulled into, you know, anti-vax or anti-police or whatever the latest thing is. But, right. you know, but yeah, right. the, so that I think that tribal thing, if we had everyone calm, everyone in a point of, you know, presence, it it would truly would be you know, revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in if you're in. Let's, Let's save the it. world. There's two of us in this group. A few more billion and we've nailed it. Well, the funny thing is, you know, Jake always tells the story about how he started Save a Warrior out of the back of his car with like zero in the bank. And he literally told me last night, if I can do it, anybody can do it, which just goes to show, I mean, anything can happen. If you build it, they will come, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Now, is Jake based in Ohio or is he in, in California? Um, yeah, he's in Ohio. He happened to be out here. So I had the fortunate opportunity to witness a men's cohort from beginning to end. So it was a men's group going through Save a Warrior at the Simi Valley location. Um, So he flew out because he's one of the men, uh, the male facilitators for the men's groups. Um, So he was out here this past weekend. So from Thursday to Sunday, I was up there just volunteering and sitting in so that I could better understand because most of my clients are men. And it is different. It's the same material, but it, it is delivered differently. Um, obviously, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, right? So you can't talk to them the same way. <laughs> That's never been proved by astrologists, though. I just want to point that out. <laughs> so um, it was incredible to see. I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin. The whole thing was incredible. But to see the transformation of these 12 men from Thursday when they first got there and they were looking just beaten down, hopeless, depressed, miserable, sad, angry, awful. Um, And then on Sunday when we, when, when it was done, 
literally i'm smiling i know this is not video recorded it was unbelievable it was so unbelievable they were hugging each other they were laughing they were smiling they looked like completely different people it's unbelievable and you would not believe this if you don't see it with your own eyes i said to i said to most of them your wives or girlfriends or mothers or friends or daughters are not going to recognize you they're not there was a vietnam vet there 75 years old I swear to God, he looked 15 years younger when he left. I am not kidding you. He was so sad and, and just, he, sad is the, is, is the only word I can think of. He just was not a happy, he was not happy when he got there. It was, it was awful. It was really hard to see that because he's a, you know, he's, he doesn't have, I mean, he's 75. Who knows how much longer he's going to live? Well, kudos to him for even showing up at that. Age. Oh my God! Seriously, seriously, it was. And and when he left, he was like a, a completely different man. Completely different man. All of them were just completely transformed. Um, so I'm sorry. Did you ask a question? <laughs> I just I no, can't. no. I think we were it's, walking through the Save uh, Warrior experience. But actually, yeah. one thing I want to touch on because this is something that I've heard that Save Warrior does well, aside from the actual program. And I need to. Jake and I are supposed to be doing another interview, and I actually want to go and you know visit and actually you either should. participate or observe or whatever that looks like in the end, yeah. and then do a do an interview after that. But yeah, one thing that Maddie and and Justin and so many of my friends that have been through um, Jared is. Where some programs I see fail, and this used to be the case in our unions mental mm -hmm. health program, the IFF one in the top of the, uh -huh. the states here, is that they do well when they're in the program and then they go back. Ah, and then yes. that tribe is lost. So yeah. talk to me about you've, you've been through those few days. What, yep. are the, what does the next year look like for that cohort? 500-day plan, James. That's what it's called, the 500-day plan. Um, I'm sure you've heard that. So the 500-day plan is doing the work of making sure that you don't drift and that you stay on track with everything that you've just learned and the experience and how to integrate everything that you've learned into your life when you come out of that safe space so that you don't end up falling off and going right back to where you started. So what that literally looks like is two books, among other things, along with daily meditation and staying in, in connection with the people that you have met in your, in your group to hold each other accountable. But it's it's working through the books. There's a book, the laundry list workbook. It's sitting, you know, 20 inches from me right now. And then um, and that's just uh, I'm not going to do it any justice, but it's a, it's a workbook to help you process um, sort of the 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 habits and things that you have um, that have become your way of being because you had to, you know, do the things that you did to survive growing up in an alcoholic family or whatever and how you became hardened or maybe you became a people pleaser and just sort of how to start to process those things and learn a better way of living. And then the other part of the 500 day plan, which I am newly into, but I know enough about it to, to briefly discuss it is um, a course in miracles, which is um, a, a daily, a daily reflection about how to look at things differently, very simply not give things meaning um, other than whatever it is. And sometimes it's just the lesson might be look at the lamp on your desk and just don't give it meaning. It just, it's just whatever, whatever it is that you see it is, it as, 
That's what it is. Don't give it more meaning than that. Because, right, this is how we get into these vicious circles. Oh, my God, my girlfriend didn't call me. Oh, my God, she must be seeing somebody. Oh, my God, she must be cheating on me. Where the hell is that coming from? She just didn't call. That's all that is. But yet we go in our little beehive in our head starts taking on a freaking life of its own. And then we and then we go to the bar because my girlfriend's cheating on me. She didn't call me. You know, she must not love me. No, no, no. That's not what happened at all. That's the story that you created. Good job with that. Now you did create a shit storm. Because <laughs> now <laughs> you're coming everywhere. Home. Yeah, now you're coming home drunk and now she is going to be pissed. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but you see what I mean? And so it's learning how to not give things meaning other than whatever whatever it is. So um and like I said, I'm very early on in that. That's one of the beauties of having been given the opportunity to go back and and sit through a program. And it was a men's group, of course, because most of my clients are men. And the whole reason I was able to do this is because I send my clients there. So I need to know what I'm talking about. Um, going back through witnessing this for this past four days um, reminded me the importance of staying on track with the 500-day plan. And one of the things I hadn't yet gotten to was this, the Course in Miracles. And so all of this is just geared towards making sure that we don't, you know, drift off of this, you know, new way of living that we now have experienced, looking at the world differently, being complete with relationships in our life that messed us up and that we were very incomplete with. And I'm not saying my life is perfect. And I said this to the men because I had the opportunity to talk to them briefly before that before everything ended on Sunday. I am not saying this is a miracle pill. It is not a miracle pill. If anybody has a miracle pill, I'm sure that the entire population would like to buy it and you will become a billionaire. It's not a miracle pill, but my life is a lot different now than it was before I went through. I will tell you that it has changed in remarkable ways. Remarkable people have come into my life that I would have not been open to because I just wouldn't have been because I wasn't capable of, of trusting. I just wasn't, you know, I just wanted to be a badass lawyer and, you know, do really well at my job because that's one of the ways that I numbed out was like working really hard and being a badass lawyer because that made me feel good. So now, even in court, it's different. I do things very differently in court now. I'm still a badass lawyer, but I do it with love. And, you know, I try to be very compassionate. Like when a prosecutor gives me some snide look or something, I'm like, you know, how are you doing today? How, how are you? You know, because I'm like, that person's suffering. And it, this is one of the things that they talk about when you come out of Save a Warrior. It's like, you're going to see stuff now that's going to blow your mind that you never saw before. And a lot of that is you see how much other people are suffering because you know it, you can see it. So I, it's very, very different. It's very, very different. I, one of my cases, um, this was probably, I don't know, a month or two after I came out, one of my clients, a firefighter, current active firefighter, LA County, this was a horrible case, horrible. He did something really, really bad to his wife, like bad, scary, awful. He's lucky he didn't get charged with a felony. He got charged with a misdemeanor. And we were going into court that day, he and I together, um, to ask the judge to give him a chance, basically. And I like laid my heart on the line in that courtroom that day and explained 
the suffering that that my client has been through that at first the judge was very skeptical about like really he suffered he's an LA County firefighter dressed you know very good looking guy standing here in the courtroom dressed nice has this great lawyer standing next to him he's suffering and I was like your honor that's the whole point appearances are really deceiving and I said you know what my father is one of the most successful lawyers in LA County he hasn't lost a case in f- over 40 years of practicing he's gorgeous he's fit he's brilliant but guess what he suffers too and he kind of looked at me and I was like that's my point you can't judge this man and I'm asking you to really look at what I've written in that motion to ask for you to give him a chance and it was grueling he put me through a barrage of questions he put my client through a barrage of questions and at the end he said you know what I'm going to tell you right now I wasn't going to grant this when I came out I was not I was going to deny your request and I was like oh shit and he said but you've convinced me and I thought to myself first of all like oh my god I actually did because this was a bad case he had like strangled his wife she was alive but he had strangled her for you know like what must have felt like an eternity to her but was really truly like I don't know 20 seconds or something that's a, that's long enough and everybody told me there's no way you're going to get the judge to grant that there's no way he's going to do that and I was like well you know what I believe in this case and I believe in what this person has been through and I think that this case and this person meet all the elements of mental health diversion because he was struggling he was an addict he was struggling he was numbing out it was it was awful it was it was awful he had major childhood trauma he had seen dad beat mom all every year of his young innocent childhood where he should have felt safe and felt everything but not safe and the judge said you've convinced me and i was like oh my god wow going in with love and compassion and not just trying to be you know a big bad lawyer really worked now how do you balance that because uh, for people listening and i'm sure you know this is something you get a lot you have a valid road to the crime but you also have a completely valid perspective from the victim you know they were victimized they were stolen they were beaten you know they were god knows what happened um so how do you how do you balance that where you know you're trying to advocate for the defendant but at right. the same time acknowledge and find justice for the victim um i think the best way to answer that question is just to say that when you humanize the defendant everything can change and it's really really easy to look at the act or the action or or you know what they did as opposed to who they are because what they did does not define them right i mean the things we do do not necessarily define us right i mean you know um uh you know telling my husband that i wanted a divorce i'm tr- i'm lowering my voice cuz one of my children just came downstairs but telling my husband i wanted a divorce i could say that that made me the worst person in the world like how could i do that i'm a terrible human being but does that really define me of course it doesn't no so it, i think when you humanize whoever the person is that that you know you're talking about and make it less about 
the, the action and more about how they got to this point and who they are and all that. And then, of course, I mean, you can't ignore, obviously, what they did because the judge is going to say, like, um, yeah, you're completely um, missing, you know, a major point of this whole conversation. So you can't ignore it. But when you when you humanize everything more um, and take a much more holistic approach, how we got there, who this person is and what they're going to do now to change their life. Um, like I said, that can change everything about the way a case plays out. Yeah. Well, it's such a unique perspective that you found. And obviously, you know, we're talking about first responders specifically, but I mean, you just take a step back and talking about everyone. Yeah. You know, you're talking about so much crime that we see, you know, you see in your courtroom, I see on the back of a fire engine or in a rescue. And, you know, this is the issue that, that you know, we're trying to address is do you want reactive which is what the fire and police normally do we you know, have your emergency first and then you call me and i'll come try and unfuck it as best we can i know or do we do preventative do we i don't know two years ago say hey this is virus coming let's try and make people healthier let's try and address the addiction element that exactly. is causing so much crime in this country and exactly. maybe we'd be in a different place but to me you know, whether it's the first responder professional, just the, the general public, you know, we have to reverse engineer to the root of the problem. And sadly, we see this generational ripple effect where some incredible human beings say, I saw what my parents did. The buck stops here. I'm not going down that path. And they turn, you know, left or right. And it's so inspiring. But then um, you have a lot of people that are like, oh, mom and dad, that's how I'm supposed to act. All right, I'm going to start slapping around my wife or, you know, getting belligerent and, and, you know, scaring my children. Yeah, you know, and what's interesting is I heard you say that. I think there's a third a third element of people that desperately, desperately don't want to become what their parents were, but involuntarily they end up in that same position. So, you know, it's the ones that do everything they can to not become that and somehow are successful, which is great. I wish I had known how to do that. Um, Then there's the ones that, um, and I'm not saying I became an alcoholic, but I do think that I had some learned behaviors that I had to unlearn. Um, and then, you know, the ones that that say, oh, well, this is how I was raised, so I'm going to raise my kids like that. But I do think that there's a big group who desperately, desperately don't want to be their parents and they become them and then they're horrified and they're like, how did this happen? I never wanted to be this way. Um, and I think that the only way around that and the only way to do it the right way and not become that is what we're talking about, you know, really um processing the the grief that's what it really comes down to i i hate to say it and of course i'm not the brilliant genius that came up with this it was you know some person named jake clark who told me who you know got it from somebody else he's really good at like taking things that he learned from books and everything and and putting it down into a a method that can be delivered over a 72 hour period you know what else i learned that was so fascinating you'll know what this means a 72-hour hold, you know, when you take somebody on an involuntary hold is 72 hours. Oh, I'm <laughs> sadly very familiar because it happened to my child and I, it shouldn't have happened. So, Oh, my God. I cannot. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Um, I think we'll have to talk about that off the air sometime. Um, but his program now is 72 hours, which is intentional because... 
when you're when your child or most people get taken on a 72 hour hold, I, mean, I know you're saying your child didn't need to go. And you're probably right. That probably was just, uh, you know, something happened that that was, you know, a perfect storm for the wrong decision. But I've known people that have been taken that did need to go. And the 72 hour hold didn't do anything, nothing. All they do is drug you up and strap you down. And then at the end of the 72 hours, they undo the buckles and they pull the drugs out and then they send you home. That does nothing. Um, Jake's 72 hour program, if you want to call it a 72 hour hold, unfreaking believable. It's unbelievable. So, um, but it's it's that processing of the unwarned grief because really, truly, that's what this all comes down to. You know, that's why we're numbing out. That's why we are drinking. You know, um, like I said, you know, the the cop getting off his shift and going to the cop friendly bar where he feels welcomed and you know drinks and drinks and drinks and drinks because he doesn't want to think about whatever the awful things are that that are bothering him from childhood and then work that day and then that bad call and then that bad case and then that gnarly fight and then whatever. And then they're down the rabbit hole, drunk, completely sometimes blackout drunk. And it was just all of that unmourned grief, you know? So it seems, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to minimize it. It's a big deal. And I say that because I'm going through it, you know, processing unmourned grief is not a fun thing. It's just not, you have to face some stuff that like, you don't want to deal with, you know? Um, and it makes me sad. Like, it makes me sad that, you know, my stepfather had a hard life and, um, like his dad died when he was 17. And my stepfather was, you know, like about to be the valedictorian of his high school class at Loyola High School in Los Angeles, which is a very prominent, great, all boys Jesuit high school that's been there for years. And my his uncle was a Jesuit priest. And like this, this was a big deal. And 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 they were like, your dad just died. I don't think you should be the valedictorian. And it, this was like awful, you know, and it's just it's it's just sad. And I and it just makes me sad. I, I just wish that. I wish I had come before him, I guess, and known enough to tell him what to do to to mourn it, you know? Yeah. Well, that's just it. We don't have a time machine, but we have today. Yep. You know? And so that's all we can do is start today and start unraveling and reverse engineering and go into the root of problems. You know, I mean, look at, again, this last year and a half and the, the health crisis that we have, especially in America, of, of obesity and diabetes and hypertension. What an amazing opportunity to address that. And it was completely oh, yeah. cast aside. So that's another thing. Get to the root of you know yes. the fact that we have fast food in our schools and we allow soda companies to put vending machines in. Our, I mean, just all these such easy fixes. But as long as we talk just solely about vaccines or just solely about Kyle Rittenhouse or whoever, we never, ever get to the point where we finally affect change because we go to the root. And the thing is, as you said, the root is an ugly conversation and yep. it's not going to make anyone rich either. So right. Right. Know, as we mentioned with the American dream, the true American dream is we're kind of compassionate to each other and we need yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. And you know, you did ask me a question, which I did not answer because remember, I'm trying to listen now much, much more, <laughs> much better than I used to. So you did ask me about balance and what I do to balance. Yes. Um, and I think this is easy for me. I think you need to surround your, I think what I do is I surround myself with people that are good for me and good influences and make me a better person. And I make them a better person. Um, I think you need to make, you know, 
I try to make good, healthy decisions about like what I put in my body. And please let me caveat that by saying I am not a healthy eater, but I try, I just try to, to make better choices. Um, first of all, I don't cook. I'm, I just don't really care about cooking. So when I'm making choices, you know, I really think that what you put in your body has, plays a huge role on how you feel. Shocker. Um, so I, um, and then I think that it's important like for me to figure out what things do make me feel good. You know, I like listening to music. So I'll listen to music sometimes at night. Like last night when I was thinking about this, this podcast and what we were going to be talking about, you know, I was like kind of listening to some of the music that I like. And I was going through some of my notes that I took like at Save a Warrior or some of the books that I told you about. And um, so, you know, doing things, uh, figuring out what it is that makes you feel good and makes you happy and then doing those things. I started watching movies again. Like I watched a movie the other night, um, you know, going to places that bring you peace. If that means, you know, going and taking a hike in the mountains, then go do that. Um, if that means going for a drive in your car, then go do that. You know, it's so easy Just get in the car and go do that. If that makes you feel good. Um, so simple things I think really help create balance, like we were saying, because affluence and and excess do not. Um, meditating, I think that really helps for balance. Um, and so uh, I think if you have a really clear picture about what what makes you feel balanced and then you just you know gravitate towards those choices and things, again, it just it totally changes your life, but you have to slow down in order to do that. Because if we don't slow down, we're just going to completely miss the forest for the trees and we'll never figure out what those things are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have no segue for my next question whatsoever. I was trying to find a good place to put it. So sexting. Oh, sex, so, so <laughs> Nothing sexting to do with balance and meditation. Shouldn't be on your list. <laughs> <laughs> but so, I wanted to make sure that we hit it I before know. we go to some closing questions. So I, I found, you know, our little discussion before we started recording fascinating. So I see this in you know my community. I'm still a little baffled why a picture of my little winky is going to change anything in the world, but it seems to definitely be a thing. But the, I didn't understand there was such a legal oh, yeah. element to this. So I'm again, give you the microphone. I'm going to shut up and, and you can educate yeah. us all on this. So I realized a couple years ago, and this was more when I came out of the DA's office and started doing criminal defense is when it really started to hit me in the face, because that's kind of like the other big part of my practice is representing young men who get uh, involved in, um, you know, accusations of sexual assault or sexting. So sexting is, is I learned much more common than I realized. I was getting calls left and right with high school boys who were getting caught up in these scandals in school where like, you know, the cute girl that he likes ends up sending a photo, you know, half clothed or sometimes not clothed to him. And then, you know, he either shows it to like one or two of his friends or, you know, this one guy like distributed it to the whole friggin' football team. And yes, this is a crime. Yes, this is a problem. Yes, this will get you in trouble. Yes, you could be charged with possession of child pornography in certain situations if she's under 18. Yes, it's distribution of child pornography if you distribute it, which some of them did. Um, and it's a big problem on, on many different levels. Um, 
not the least of which is the poor girl who clearly has trauma that she's suffering from because you shouldn't do that. And, and girls don't do that unless they are trying to get some sort of love or affection or attention from some other male in their life because they're not getting it at home from dad. And that's just my opinion. And people can disagree with that. But I'm telling you, you don't do that if you are getting the love and affection and attention from your father, period. Because you don't do that at age 11, 12, 13, or 14. You just don't. Older women, I suppose, do it because they're grown enough to understand like what they're doing. But young girls, you don't do that unless something is lacking at home. And so I became very concerned for both the girls and, and the boys. And I started uh, going out and talking about it because it was like happening all the time. And I was literally getting calls all the time. Um, it was like an epidemic. It, it was crazy. Um, and so I just, my purpose is to educate these kids because they don't understand this and they, and the girls don't understand how bad it can get and, and, and how their picture, once it's gone, it's gone, like gone, gone. As in, if that gets posted on the internet, it's gone. You can never undo the internet. Once you put, once a picture's on there and gets shared once, then it gets shared 10 times then a hundred times and a thousand times then, and you're, it's gone. You can't undo the damage. Um, and so, you know, the criminal exposure is a, is a big, big issue, but just the emotional issues that come with that for, you know, both people involved. Cause what kid, what, what teenage boy wants to go home and tell mommy and daddy, uh, I got pulled into the office today by the school police because I sent a picture, a, a picture, a naked picture of a girl to the whole football team. And mom is like, you did what? It's a horrible conversation to have to have. Um, so teenagers don't know unless they're told, right? Because they just do what they do. All they all a teenager is concerned with is what is going on right now in this little tiny, you know, part of my brain. And I know the audience can't see this and I'm doing it. <laughs> 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 binoculars but, but, your hands. But, but teenagers don't have any concept of what is going on beyond. It's just what's happening to me right now. What are my friends doing? What am I doing today? Did I get my homework done? And what's for dinner? And then what's for my second dinner? I have boys. So what is my for my second dinner at nine? <laughs> um, so they don't understand the repercussions and the damage that it can do. They just are like, oh, I got a picture of a naked girl. Awesome. I'm going to show my buddy. Uh, don't do that. Not a good idea. So that's how that came about. And it just became a really important issue for me because I just saw the damage that it was doing, like I said, to on both sides of the coin, to the to the girls and to the to the young boys. Um, and then it became a bigger conversation. Like when I go now and speak to groups of boys, I speak about that. And then I also just talk about like making good decisions while drinking and, you know, maybe hooking up with a girl, basically the in a nutshell, don't hook up with girls who are wasted because girls who are wasted are unable to consent. And you can be charged with rape. And the look on their face is like, I could be charged with what? And I'm like, yes, you heard me correctly. You don't have to tie her down. You don't need to put a pillow over her head. You don't need to drag her off a dark alley to be charged with rape. You can simply walk upstairs in your fraternity house from the fraternity party with a girl who's wasted and therefore unable to consent and have sex with her. And you can get charged with rape. And they're like, oh my God. And I said, yeah. Oh my God is right. You know how many times I get that call about once a week. 
Yeah, happens all the time, but they don't know what they don't know. And until somebody tells them, they just think they're having fun. So really, really dangerous position to be in if you're a young boy. And like I said, I have boys. So you could be damn straight. I'm going to be teaching them good, <laughs> good choices. <laughs> did that answer your question? Yeah. yeah, no, it did. And I've got a 14 year old boy. So when we had this, you know, when I, I kind of researched and realized it's something that you talked about, yeah. I've shown him the reef knot. So I told him, right, go tie that in your winky and we'll undo it in 10 years and then we'll, <laughs> then we'll go. But what was also very, um, you know, scary slash interesting was the, the kind of uh, concept that if you have, for example, a 19-year-old with a 17-year-old's picture on their phone, now yeah. you're getting into the realm of pedophilia too. So oh, talk yeah. to me about that. Well, yeah, you, you not only are you getting into that realm, but you're in it if you have a picture, you know, of an underage girl and, and you are an adult. And um, this is something, again, that that young men need to understand the criminal exposure with what they are doing. And I think that a lot of them think, well, I'm not ever going to get caught. How would I ever get caught? Well, let me explain to you how you might get caught. Because when that relationship ends and she's upset and then she tells mom and now mom is mad at you because you broke daughter's heart and somehow inadvertently mom gets a hold of her cell phone and sees that she sent you that photo. That's how that gets found out because that is how these things happen. You know, the relationship goes south and now mom and dad find something out that you thought was going to be a secret that was taken to the grave and it just isn't. So um, these these kids need to be really, really careful with what they do with their phones. Um, and again, it's not even necessarily the criminal consequences. It's the emotional stuff. Because any kid that's been through um, a sexual assault investigation, you know, for a sex crime, will tell you that that was the scariest shit they've ever been through. And any girl who's gotten caught up in some, one of these scandals where her photo gets passed around, that's a horrific, horrific thing to go through. And oftentimes those girls end up having to leave the school or the whole school district because they can't get away from everybody knows. So it's very serious. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's potentially criminal. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I find the the concept weird. I mean, you know, if I, I know. had back then, I would have drawn it and handed it, and then the, she would have said, hey, you sent me a picture of half an earthworm. What's this? I'm like, it's supposed to be my penis. <laughs> Jesus, I'm not a very good artist. I don't know what to tell you. But joking apart, I've actually heard of, you know, more than one first responder who, again, has got in trouble sending pictures. So what are you seeing with that in my community? Oh, yes. That's a process addiction. That happens all damn day all day long. Yes. That's a, that's a huge process addiction. So that's become, you know, self-made porn instead of just going on and getting porn of other people, they're sending porn of themselves all day long to multiple women. Yeah. Go through one of their phones. It's not just a one, it's to like, you know, five. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's the thrill. It's the addiction. It's the process, the process addiction. By that, I mean that thing that you do that, you know, releases the endorphins and everything that makes you feel good. The high, the thrill. Um, yeah. <laughs> dumb, really dumb, by the way. But nobody said that people were smart. So, um, 
Yeah. Well, and like I said, you know, when, when you're whatever, however many years into your career of, of all the elements I talked about earlier, the sleep deprivation, you're starting to get through that miswiring phase. I by know. That point, you know, and oh, so, I know. You know that, and you're numbing out, you know, numbing out is a real thing. I'm not saying it excuses the behavior, but it is, it's important to understand that, that that's what's going on. They're not just like, oh, hey, let me just send a, you know, dick pic. <laughs> it's like, they're numbing out. This is an escape. No different than the alcohol, no different than the gambling, no different than the exercise. Whatever it is that makes them feel like they can escape is what they're going to do. And that's one of the things. But not a good idea. But I could say that a million times and people don't always listen to me. So because again, I think yeah, their state of mind doesn't, you know, allow that to come in. Right. So right, I want to right. transition to some closing questions, but just yes. before I do, obviously you're based in the LA area. Yes. For someone who's listening that maybe has just got caught doing something or, you know, maybe is, is just curious, what advice would you give to a member of this community that, for example, has found themselves doing something that is the wrong side of the law um, and trying to bring the journey that they've been in into the conversation to try and assist with mitigating whatever the problem is. Um, do you mean, and I'm trying to make sure I understand your question, like they are the person that's potentially exposed to criminal liability? Yeah, or, so let me or, probably okay, fra okay. phrase it very boy. So they've, they've been, okay. they've been, charged with something they'd never thought about this mental health route not not justifying but you know part of the defense right how do they go about that if they're not coming to you specifically um i think they need to get into um meetings for whatever the addiction or issue is immediately whether that's sex anonymous um aa na which is narcotics anonymous wh whatever whatever it is that thing is that's creating this, the situation that they're in where they're exposed to criminal liability, they need to start going to meetings immediately, immediately. And then they need to find a culturally competent um, clinician who is a therapist who understands first responders, right? Because first responders have a career, a culture, and a lifestyle that is completely abnormal and makes no sense and is dissimilar from the rest of the population. It just is. And so they need to find somebody that understands first responders because you can't go to a regular therapist. They're going to look at you and probably start crying because they're like, oh, my God, I've literally heard about a therapist who started crying when one of my clients was telling their story. I have multiple. Yeah. One was told to get out, said, I yeah. can't help you. And this was someone exactly. who was suicidal by that yeah. point. Yeah. So that would be my those would be the immediate two things that I would do. Um, then I would say you need to find somebody you need to find a lawyer in your area who also is skilled at navigating these types of clients because first responders are different in some ways it makes my job a little bit easier because i don't have to explain the basics of like what's going on like you're in the middle of an investigation you're going to get charged with a crime a first responder usually is like oh okay i understand what that means regular people are like what does that mean and i'm like well what part didn't you understand you're being investigated and you're going to get charged with a crime and they're like well what does that mean <laughs> and i'm like okay let's start over <laughs> So, but those, those would be the immediate things that I would do. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you for that. I want to transition to some closing questions. We've been chatting for two hours now. It's been I an know. amazing conversation. Yeah. So the first question I love to ask, and you've touched on a couple of books already, but are there any, is there a book or any books that you love to recommend to people? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. 
Um, yes, I would recommend, um, I know you know this book, Change or Die. Change or Die is a great book um, just about you know changing your life and getting out of the sort of vicious circle that you're in or, or else you know it will kill you. Um, the Body Keeps the Score. I know you've heard that about how the body stores trauma and, and will kill us basically if we don't uh, release the trauma um, and um, how God changes your brain talks a lot about, you know, meditation and how looking at the world differently and, you know, don't, don't give things meaning that don't, you don't need to give meaning to like girlfriend, you know, my best example, my favorite example, girlfriend didn't call me. She must be cheating. No, she just didn't call you. <laughs> That's all that means. <laughs> but, you know, we start this crazy racket in our head, worst case scenario, because, you know, we've seen worst case scenarios. So we can get there really quickly. Average people, average people don't see worst case scenarios. So they can't they can't go down that hole as quickly as we can. We can get down that hole like in record time. Can't we? Yeah. Oh, yeah. If, so if my family's a few minutes late, I'm like, well, clearly they must be dead in the ditch somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, they, they, they must have traffic. I know. I used to, I used to call my husband. Where are you? What do you mean? Why are you not home? I thought you were dead. What? And he's like, why would you think that? And I'm like, well, because you're usually home by now. Okay, well, I had to stay late. And it's like, well, in my brain, you had driven off the cliff. (laughs) Who does that? But I mean, I get it. I mean, I understand it, but yeah. Beautiful. Well, some great book suggestions. So thank you. You mentioned about finally being able to watch films again. So are there any movies and or documentaries that you love to recommend? Oh, so... We watched Castaway this weekend at Save a Warrior. That's a great one. And the other one, well, I just happened to watch this because we were watching it in, in up there. Um, Silver Linings Playbook. Very, very good movie. And um, let me think. What's one of my other go-tos that I really, really love? I don't know if I can come up with one right now. I think those are those are those are the two because they refresh us in my mind. <laughs> Beautiful. I'm getting and- old, James. My memory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm 47, so I'm right next to you, so I totally understand. Um, what about documentaries? Any any that you love, or are there any that actually show your world in 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 the light that you respect? Um, so there's a really good. Um, you know, there's a really good documentary about Save a Warrior, which we should, um, let me just think of the name. When the War Comes Home, I think is what it's called. Um, when the War Comes Home, it was by Soledad O'Brien and she um, did a documentary about um, the program and Jake. Um, that's a really, really good one. Um, there is a, oh God, what is it called? There's, um, there's a documentary about trauma that's going on, going all around Facebook. God, what is the name of it? It's by um, Gabor. Yes, that one. That's amazing. That's amazing. I forget what it's called. I'll look it up so I can put it on the the show notes. But yeah, I actually watched it. They they showed it for free just for a few days. Yes. Wasn't it Um, good? That was really good. Yeah, it was amazing. Someone I still want to try and get on. He's incredible. That'd be cool. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One day, hopefully. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professionals of the world? Um, I don't know if you have. um, I feel like I might have given you a couple names before. Forgive me if I already told you these people. Uh, Michael Sugre, who is a 
retired uh, Northern California police officer who talks a lot about these issues. He's amazing. He's been on. Yeah, yeah. I had him. I had Mike on about six months ago now, I think it was. Okay. And then did you ever have Matt Domjancic? Matt? Yes. Okay, Matt so Matt. Well. And then let me think of um, if there's anybody else that I can think of. Um, you're going to have Jake back on for a second round. Yes, that's well um, over you. Oh, I know. I don't know if she would do it because she's shy. But Rosa, Rosa is one of the females that works for Save a Warrior. She's an equine therapist with horses. She does the horse therapy. She's beautiful, amazing, retired LA City fire, got firefighter of the year one year, a female. She's amazing. She's amazing. She would be great. But she, we need to... We need to give her the courage. She doesn't like to, she doesn't like all the attention. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Well, I mean, that's the thing about these conversations. Though. I, I, I hope it doesn't feel like a limelight. It's just a right. chat between two people that happens right. to be recorded and shared by, you know, thousands of yes. people. <laughs> but if yeah. you leave the last bit out, minor detail, it's a conversation. Minor detail. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and your practice, what do you do to decompress these days? Uh, pretty much all the things that I, that I said, like meditation twice a day is the goal morning and night. Um, I do love listening to my loud music, like Lincoln park and you know, there, there's a life, there's a life lost too soon. He lived right up the street. My my book, I called one more light. I know. Named after the song for a specific reason. That's one of my most favorite songs in the whole entire world. Yeah. Yeah. So pertinent. Um, and, um, I do try to take walks, although I've been really slacking on that. I need to get back into that. Um, and then, like I said, spending time with people that I care about who make me a better person, really, because connection makes all the difference in the world. When you are, when you feel alone, there's nothing worse, right? That's the worst feeling in the world. So staying connected to people that really care about me really, really helps me decompress. Absolutely. As Johan Hare says, the opposite of addiction is connection. Yep. I think he's absolutely right. Yep. Yep. So staying connected to people like you who are just good souls makes my life better. Honestly, it really well, does. Likewise. I mean, it's it's funny, you know, you, I've had some amazing people in my life, you know, over the years, but when you start surrounding yourself with people who for lack of a better description, who just are trying to make the world better rather than go through the daily routine and, you know, kudos right. to everyone who's just out there grinding and trying to take care of their family. But right. the, the Jay Clarks and, you know, all the people that, that we're around that are just doing that little bit extra to try and help themselves and yeah. a few other people. It's amazing how, you know, like I said, with, with the therapy, I mean, these, to me, these conversations are therapy to me and I'm not seeking therapy, but they're so nourishing to my soul. Yeah. So I always say, I've said it three times today, when we help heal others, we help heal ourselves, right? Absolutely. So 100%. that's huge. That may, That's probably on my list of things that I do to decompress and feel better and balance. Well, when I go out and like try and help other people through these issues, I feel a million times better, million times better. So, yep. yeah. Absolutely. It's funny because I made some snarky comment the other day one of my other, other guests. I'm like, if only they'd written a religious book about someone who goes out and just helps people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a second. They did. It's called the Bible, oh, right. the Quran, yeah. all the other religious books where you selflessly funny. serve. That's so, so yeah, if maybe if we actually took a step back and listened to some of the wisdom right. of the ancients, we would yeah. reframe the way we, we, we you know, conduct yeah. ourselves and actually try and help our fellow man and woman. Exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, then the last question then for people listening, how can they find your practice and then where else can they find you online? So the best way to find me is on my website, which is what how everybody finds everybody anyway, right? So um, that's uh, Hule, H-O-U-L-E, and then there's a dash or a hyphen, um, and then law, L-A-W.com. So www.hule-law.com. Um, and then I do have um, my Instagram, which is Lisa Hule, attorney and speaker. And I also have my Facebook um, business page, which is Hule Law APC, which is just short for a professional corporation. Um, so those are the those are the best ways. And then when you get to my website, you get to my cell phone, and you know I'm always always available. Beautiful. Well, Lisa, I just want to say it. Thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. As I say, so many people that come on here. You know, unless someone's just talking about their work and it never goes any deeper. You know, anyone that goes deeper and has the courage to tell their story. And, you know, as I always say, there's a, there's a cost to revisiting some of these memories, but the, the payoff that I see from thousands of people that get to listen to this is so, so powerful. However, it's still, you know, it takes someone courageously to tell their story. So I just want to thank you so much for, for telling, you know, the story that, that, you know, the journey that you've been, but also that you've been so generous today with your time over two hours of conversation. Well, I, I am blessed that you had me on. I'm blessed to have you in my life, James. I really mean that. I know we don't know each other well, but you are a good, good soul and a good dude. And I have nothing but love for you. And I'm so glad that you're in a good place now. 